Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher coach Bobby Julik and Outskirts visionary Gus Morton invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, I'm here with Gus Morton. How are you doing today, Gus? I'm doing well, Bobby. I'm doing really well. How about you? Yeah, not bad. I kind of got a little sleepy during the stage today. You know, had I washed some dishes, took the dogs out, vacuumed the floor. You know, it wasn't quite the same sort of excitement, but um, turned out to be a pretty exciting stage, pretty as we predicted. And uh, happy to say that I actually got it right today. I yeah, jumped you did. ship from my from my Caleb U- Ewan boat over to Viviani, and boom, that probably won't happen again. I'm very poor at picking winners. Yeah, Bobby, I, I reckon they could have scrapped the first uh, 190Ks of today's stage. I did myself set a timer in the middle of the stage for a little nap, but <laughs> you know, you got to do what you got to do. We've got a great show today. The theme is sports directors or directeur sportifs as they are more commonly referred to in the uh, non-Anglo parts of the world. Today's race, it was fast as hell. I'm going to give you the lay of the land. Started in Rennes, which has been host of the tour 12 times before. It was once the place that they crowned the kings of France, and in more recent time, it's been a place where they crowned different kings. That's the kings of the sprint, with McEwen, Greipel, and Pataki all picking up stage wins there. So... It had some pedigree in the fast finishes. Um, stage today finished in Nancy, uh, which has hosted the tour 17 times before. It was a you know pretty straightforward sprint, little curve in the last 500 meters, but uh, yeah, pretty straightforward. Distance 200 k's, weather 24 degrees, sunny, crosswind kind of all day, but nothing too serious. Uh, and then we had a couple of fourth category climbs. The main one was uh, Cote de Reserves, which was. Well, there was one at, sorry, that wasn't the main one. Uh, the Cote du Maron was the main one. 3.2Ks, 5% at tw- uh, at 20K to go, which, you know, there's a little action, but nothing too much. What have we got here? One thing that's interesting uh, I wanted to note about yesterday's stage, perhaps uh, more importantly, was that there was no champagne on the podium. And nor has what? there ever been. Nor has there ever been since 1991, which I didn't even, I, I can't say I've noticed that. Um, but the it's 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 been outlawed in France. You're not allowed to... Not allowed to uh, promote the use of alcohol or tobacco. So you can't smoke a cig or drink a glass of champagne on the finishing podium in, in France. So interesting enough. Um, well, but- um, perhaps, perhaps it's because the French know that wine or champagne should not be wasted, especially the good stuff, right? So exactly right. Exactly right. I think, I think you're I, right I there. support that law. I support that law. Yeah, you know, hey, put some more for me. Put some Asti Spumanti little, you know, bubbled apple cider up there. But gosh, you know, I never thought of that. You never see anybody spraying champagne on the tour. It's always at the Giro. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, there you go. There's the fun fact. Um, Before we dive into the to to how the race went, should we uh, should we get our daily dose? Yeah. Hey, Gus, you know, I know everyone has heard about Road ID and probably have one already. But have you seen that they're offering some different options now? They've got the fixed dog tag, which is what I have. So if, if you hear me jiggling, that's the dog tag that I'm wearing around my neck. The other thing that they have new, which, which is pretty cool to you dog lovers out there, is they actually have a pet ID. 
you know, we got to keep an eye on our, our four-legged friends as well, you know, like you never know when they're going to slip out the back gate and go over to, to neighbor Tom's house and, you know, you want to make sure that they, they know who they are. Anyway, really, really good stuff over there. Go check them out. So, okay, today's Road ID Tour Trivia. To play, head over to roadid.com. So today's question, I think I know this one. Who has won the most total stages all time in Tour de France history? Go to roadid slash Tour de France to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily price, which is the Thermagun G3 Pro. One lucky winner will also take home a $10,000 BMC shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash TDF. Hey, talking about these prizes again, Gus, have you ever used that Theragun? Took the words right out of my mouth, Bobby. My brother's got one. Um, it's so good. Man, I the first time I actually didn't use it, I didn't see it, but I heard it. You know, it's, it's like a drill, right? Isn't it but, based off yeah, a that, drill? Like, isn't that how the dude invented it? Was just he, he like was using one of those like uh, hammer drills and then... Somehow he he like went from ha- drilling a hole in the wall to like massaging his legs with it. But today's stage it was long and uneventful until uh, those final few kilometers. Bobby, do you want to give us a bit of a rundown? Yeah, I must admit I was a little bit wrong there with the prediction. I thought there'd be a few more people wanting to get into that breakaway today, but kilometer zero, the first break went right away. Yeah. Um, Maybe people are starting to think about tomorrow and especially stage six already. But, you know, I expected there to be a little bit more action. And especially when you have two guys from one team go into a group of three, I guarantee you, if you were about ready to go in that group, you just pulled up the parking brake and said, no, 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 no. That's that's not where I want to be for the next, you know, 217K. But yeah, it was it was made, you know, they got the gap right away. They kept him at a you know plus or minus three minute buffer the entire time, controlled by um, uh, Visma, Lotto Sudal, a little bit with with Dakota Quick Step there at the end. But those three guys in the break, man, they they looked a little chippy, you know. They so we had Mickey Shar, we had uh, Backart and Ofredo from Wanty Goubert, and okay, this is that stereotypical. TV, Tour de France, be on TV attack. But when the sprint came or the KOM came, it wasn't like they just like agreed and just rolled through. They like Mickey Shar again, just launched from way far out. And it made me think about the first stage of the Tour of California this year when he did the same thing going for that bonus sprint. And I'm like, man, you know, you're in the breakaway of three. Can't you guys just kind of come to a little bit of agreement and say, okay, I'm going to take this. You're going to take that. We're all going to be friends. This is all for naught anyway. So let's just get along. I reckon I'm into it because like otherwise, like I might have just jumped off the balcony. It was that boring. So at least, you know, at least he was like, well, it's a race. You know, we're here to race for these points. Let's race for him. Um, I must admit though, watching him try, watching, watching Mickey Shaw wind it up for the sprint reminded me of watching like a prey mantis when it gets up to speed you know like you see a prey mantis like crawling across the ground like he just kind of like slowly winds it up winds it up winds it up just keeps getting faster and faster and faster you know he's almost two meters tall yeah i mean he's 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 the biggest guy in the tour de france one meter 90 97 like yeah geez he's his power output today pretty much 
was the equivalent of every other rider in the Tour de France as well today. He was doing 45% of the work, or did do 45% of the work on the front of that of that group of three. Um, so he really earned his spaghetti this afternoon. That's right, that's right. But there was one funny part uh, that that I don't know if everyone picked up on because of you know the coverage goes back and forth, but I've never seen anybody stop on the side of the road to take a nature break in a three-man breakaway. And I was just thinking, Mickey wants, Mickey wants to pull the ripcord here. He, wa- he wants to get out of this thing. And he was probably secretly praying that those two guys would continue without him. Unfortunately, his tactic didn't work because they actually waited for him. And then he's like, oh, damn, I thought that was going to work. Of course but, I waited uh, for him, though, because they're like, fuck, we're going to have to ride now if he's not here. We're actually going to have to, like, put some effort in. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, the other thing that kind of stood out today, it being one of those long stages where guys maybe let their guard down a little bit, was there, there was way too many crashes uh, due to that, you know, the road furniture. And my question there is... Okay, you put a hay bale out in front of a sign, right? Or you know some sort of some sort of um, obstacle in the in the road. Okay, the hay bale. So so you're gonna hit two things now. You're gonna hit the hay bale, then you're gonna hit that obstacle. But why don't they in this day and age have a motorcycle guy there with a flag and a whistle, just making sure that the guys that aren't paying attention because it's a very relaxed stage talking to to their buddies, they look up and boom, they hit the sign. It was like what happened to Casper Asgreen yesterday. You yeah, know, and they and they had these. They did. I noticed at the end because I like obviously at the start of the stage, like we saw that that happening, and then at the end of the stage, they have these little like flashy lights now that they put above um, the road furniture. But that was only I only saw that like in the last ten kilometers or fifteen k's. So. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, the real question is, why the hell do they make these stages so long? Like, that's going to happen. Guys are bored. Guys are tired. No point. Wasted day. Wasted energy. In it's my part opinion. of the whole Dude. aura of the Tour de France of these I grand know, tours. You got to, you got to have these these certain long stages. I get it. You, you know, do. I'm not going to complain too much about that. But so yeah, Mickey Mickey takes the first KOM, then Backert wins the sprint. And then, again, a little foreshadowing of the finish today. Viviani took that sprint pretty serious, even though it was only fourth-place points, right? I mean, he, he, yeah. he, he launched, and he beat uh, Cabrelli and Sagan. So little by little, you know, Sagan's little, you know, quite large buffer there because Viviani was, was out of the points on the first day's sprint. Uh, yeah. He's clawing his way back into contention. And, you know, those sprinters, once they get a whiff of that sort of thing and smell blood— um, Sagan may be in for a little bit more difficult of a, of a try at the set record setting seventh green Jersey than we had initially thought. That being said, Sagan is the only guy in the, that goes for the green Jersey competition that if there is a sprint after a category one climb, he could go in the breakaway and then still win that sprint. A guy like Viviani, he could never do that. So I'm sure they've already looked at the race book and maybe Sagan, it just, Sagan's just missing a little explosivity to me. I mean, obviously, he's still strong. I mean, he's on the podium of these, you know, got second on the first stage, got third today. Um, but yeah, he's, he's just not, he doesn't have that snap that those other guys do. But yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't he seem realized- to have the hunger this year, like that last little 1%. But I mean, that said, you know, he's still finishing, as you said, like he was 
on the podium. So he's still sniffing around. Um, but it'll be, I mean, I welcome it. I welcome a bit of action in that um, competition. And, and I mean, I'd be happy to see Sagan win it again, so long as it goes to the line. So I'm looking forward to, to watching that uh, over the next few weeks. Let's talk about the real race. Let's talk about the actual race, which was uh, from that final climb, from 18K to go to the finish. You know, they hit the climb. Yumbo were on the front. They um, they basically, like, you know, set a tempo at the beginning of that climb, and everyone for a minute or two was kind of happy just to let them roll with it, you know, so they were going to take it quite easy to make sure Gronawagen got over. And then finally, uh, one of the guys from Bora, you know, went to the front and, and put... And, put the hammer down a bit and then it was backed up by the Sunweb guys who tried to make it hard but it, it sort of got a bit strung out but not really um, and then and then that insane drop to the finish right they must have been doing well I mean they, they were sort of hinted that they'd be doing up, upwards of 100k an hour down there I'm not sure what they what they ultimately hit but it was a fast run down to the finish yeah and everyone was nervous everyone wanted to be in the front everyone has you know scouters out there looking at at, at the course, at the turns, at the, at the speed and relaying that information back. And that just kind of makes you nervous, you know, like sometimes I think back to the, the old good old days when we didn't have radios, that it was actually like, okay, you knew you had to get from point A to point B and you needed to steer your bike and you had to keep your eyes up the road. Now guys have so much information. It just must make them much more nervous than, than, than before. And but, yeah, because yeah, I mean, imagine, imagine like, like what happens now is you get over the radio, like, okay, like, you know, two, three kilometer descent, you don't need to touch your brakes, you know, like you can run, you can run these corners brakeless, like, so everyone's getting that same information. Whereas once upon a time, you wouldn't be getting that information, right? Like, but they have it. So it's sort of like, okay, I know, even though I've never been down this road before, I know I can super tuck around this corner and, and then there won't be like a hairpin uh, on the other side of it. So that's it, right? Like now the pace is just so much higher because of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was, it was just great to be able to see that, you know, the helicopter footage. But one thing I must say is this year, more than any, it just seems like there's, you know, so many of the jerseys can be confused for the other one. You know, there's a lot of white in the jersey. We know that. They've, we, we, we see that every day on TV. But then you throw in the young jersey, the white jersey. Then there's a couple national champions in a white jersey. I was ask, actually questioning today in the lead out, who was that that was leading out in front of Marco before Markov went? And then I, I realized... Know. Then I realized that it was Richese, the Argentinian champion. But, you know, from, from above, it's like, wait a second, who's that in the white jersey leading out the Danish national champion, leading out a quick step guy, you know? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's who, a, who, a who up until can... a week ago was in the, was in the tricolor as well. Like, so like, <laughs> exactly. just a team of national so, champs. And then the yellow jersey, you know, you got uh, Jumba Vis- Visma with some yellow on it. And then you have, of course, the yellow jersey. So I'm like, you know, from that helicopter shot, you're always kind of questioning, like, who's where? Great sprint. I mean, th- those helicopter views give you a real good idea of the bedlam that goes on. I always referred to the Peloton like an amoeba. It's constantly changing shape. It's stringing out, grouping together, but always kind of staying together, right? But in this yep. situation, if you're not moving up, you're moving back. So if you think that you can just sit in that little bubble, which is always that, like, that nice little area where the amoeba is kind of like the head of the amoeba, uh, those days are over. Because if you're not constantly moving up, you're moving back. And that's, that's just cycling nowadays. And, you know, especially with all those turns and the roundabouts, it thins out and comes back together. But, you know, listen, we had a great sprint. It was a fair sprint. Luckily, no crashes. Um, 
I, I actually envision there being some, some crashes today because being the first stage of the tour, you got a lot of fresh legs out there, people that think they can win. But yeah, what a lead out. Mm, that lead out was unbelievable. Michael Markov has totally reinvented himself. Um, he came onto a team that I was working with back in 2009 and he came straight off the track. He was world champion, Madison guy, he did the six day stuff and little by little, he just, I mean, he's a talent. There's no doubt about it. But then on one of the last teams that I was together with him at, he kind of lost his way a little bit and maybe it was the, the team dynamics and, you know, we, we didn't really have that, that lead out or that big sprinter that he could really help. But man, since switching over to, to coin a quick step. This guy is just money. I mean, he's the guy that every sprinter wants. He's that, that uh, I'm sorry, Mark Cavendish's um, trusty lead-out guy uh, who's, who just announced his retirement. Why am I forgetting yeah. his name? I've, I've totally awesome. Just blanked on his name. Total yeah, awesome guy. Australian um, guy. Mark Renshaw. Sorry, Mark. You are the best. Yeah. I can't believe I just forgot that. But, um, yeah, these guys do so such a great job. They could be a top sprinter, maybe not the the highest level, but they've decided to reinvent themselves, commit themselves to a team, to a certain sprinter. And those guys just have the mojo. And today mm. that, that was just perfectly done. And, you know, obviously Viviani has to have the juice to get around, but man, what a, what a great way of having Richese, you know, pull off Markov launch. Richese kind of pulls off and gets into the middle, doesn't do anything on purpose, just gets out of the way, but kind of disrupts everybody behind him so that the other riders have to adjust their line. And yeah, yeah. it comes through with the goods. So Viviani congratulations. Said at the end. Viviani said at the end of the interview, he was like, I only had to ride 180 meters. Like Richese pulled off, like uh, he's like, he was getting pressure on the right from, um, from one of the UAE guys and he's like Rikesi like pulled off to the right and kind of created a bit of space there and like it was just perfect like he said he's like it was it was it was a perfect lead out and um and yeah one one to go back and watch if you want to be a, a sprinter and you want to be a uh you want to be a lead out man um or you want to put together a train go back and watch that and you'll, and you'll learn how should yeah. we uh and, Vivi and Viviani's up to second in the green jersey classification now he moved up 11 spots in that classification today so yeah so we have we have uh, Peter Sagan still in the green jersey. Yep. Then we have we still have Tim Wellens, who I think I'm I'm thinking he's looking at tomorrow. Yeah, he's sure, going to go on the attack he, tomorrow. I reckon. I I think you're right. He he looked like he pulled the pin a little bit early on purpose today. Um, and then let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Julian Alaphilippe. You know, he's in the yellow jersey. Uh, to me. He reminds me of one of my heroes, Laurent Jalabert. And it's not just because he's French. Okay, I get that. But he is just fearless and exciting and just goes for it, right? Like he doesn't he doesn't he just really races. He just goes he, for he's it. a racer. He's he's a racer. He's not staring down at his heart rate monitor or his power meter. He's just he's just letting it fly. And you know, anytime that a Frenchman has the yellow jersey is is huge. It being the first stage of the Tour de France this year, that's even bigger. But, you know, often in the past, the French have had to wait quite a while, if at all, to win a stage in the Tour. Now that mm. Monkey's off their back, now that Monkey's off their back, you know, the press don't get to say, hey, one of the French riders is going to win a race. So I think that's going to be really motivating for other French riders in the peloton. And, you know, French riders definitely don't win as prolifically in the Tour de France as, as many other countries. But man, when you see your, your, one of your homeboys up there in the yellow jersey and winning a stage, 
that that always kind of translates to hey i can do that as well so i i just i just wanted to give a little bit of a shout out there to julian alaphilippe not only for yesterday but just this whole season has been amazing you know, oh, winning I mean, the races. He, him, him riding under the Flam Rouge today on the front of the group, that was sick. Wins yesterday in the yellow jersey, sacrificing it all for Viviani. Like, that says everything about what kind of a guy he is. Um, he's a racer, and he's, he's obviously, you know, a team player as well, which is awesome. So, yeah, we need more guys like that. Let's, uh, we've got the super fan here. Should we, uh, should we take a question? Let's do it. It's time for super fan. Hey guys, great stage today, Viviani. Oh, I love an Italian stage winner. I just love post-race interview he gave today was just kind of a different post-race interview from most of the Italian sprinters you've seen over the years. He was pretty humble, a lot of credit to his uh, lead out, lead out and uh, team staff, uh, which was cool. But question for you guys. Um, it's been speculated in the cycling media over the years that former domestiques make the best director sportifs rather than former champions. The classic example they always go back to is Johan Brunil. Um, never a, a super prolific winner, but uh, definitely once he transitioned to being a director sportif, won a number of <laughs> grand tours. Um, a current example might be Nico Portal for Sky or Charlie Wigalius, or maybe even uh, I think Matt White fits the role pretty well. Uh, what do you think? What, uh, what makes a better director sportif? That's a great question, and I totally agree with you. Um, you know, the, the stars, you know, they, they have a, had a different physiology than, than the guys that had to work for them. You know, I'm not saying that it came easy, but they didn't have to really squeeze the blood out of the turnip to get a result. You know, it was just there. But the guys that had to look at the race book and had to study and had to know the climbs because they were like, hey, man, you know, I may be in the Gruppetto, so I need to calculate where I need to be in this climb because there's only so much time to lose. I think that mentality, that, that hardworking, professional, organized mentality is super important. I also think the most crucial part of being a good director sportif is to not be competitive with the riders. So, you know, ending your, their career on their terms, being comfortable moving from the, the, the bike into the car without having any real animosity there. You know, that, that, that calmness, because so much of being a director sportif is being a psychologist. You know, you need to get the best out of these guys, sometimes in the worst situations, right? So, Absolutely, I believe that a rider who was used to being having to work hard and maybe not being that that winner does make a better director sportif. Um, Bjarne Reis, who won a lot of races, he he was a very good director sportif, but at the same time, he was relying on guys like Alan Galopan and and Kim Anderson to to really communicate with the riders. So that communication with the riders, you got to feel that these guys get you, and they're not just placating you, but they you know that they understand you, that they'll listen to you. And sometimes for for a star, they don't have that patience to deal with you know, little people problems, if you want to call it that. So Bobby, out of today's Peloton, um, who do you think would make a good DS? Uh, you got a couple of guys kind of coming towards the end of their career, might be looking to transition. Uh, any guys you've worked with that you think would kind of fit that, that role really well? Super fan. 
Wow, that that's I'd have to really think about that one. Um, Mark Rencho, M- M- Matt Matt Heyman, Matt Heyman, but he's already moved over. Uh, he's been playing around with it, kind of halftime and and stuff like that. I think he would be phenomenal. He was the leader, the road captain, and I think that also translates over to being a good DS. I don't think you can just be from a guy that sits in the back of the bus and doesn't say anything to the guy who goes to the front of the bus and starts giving the presentations. And, you know, there has to be that, that mutual respect for sure. So, you know, it's kind of a, a flub dancer, but for me it would be Matt Heyman, and I say flub because he's almost already in the car full time. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that one for sure. He's uh, he's a he's a humble uh, gentleman, and he's he knows how to he knows how to ride a bike race and, and work for others. So I reckon those those are the qualities, right? Should we? Uh, any more questions, super super fan? Anything else? No worries, man. Should we? Uh, let's let's talk let's talk more on on directors, Bobby. Like. Because I think um, you know you hear a lot about the director and 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 writers often reference them in the media and of course you know you see the team cars in the caravan right so you know they're there and this kind of they're this omnipresent uh, character but I th- I don't know if a lot of people really know like how many directors there are at a race like the Tour de France what each of them do how they each kind of you know fill out <clears throat> fill out that role. Do you want to kind of break that down a little bit? Yeah, I, I refer the director sportif. He, he's like the, the papa of the team. And the second directors are more like, you know, the big brothers of the team. But it's, you know, in the Tour de France, these big races, you could have three to five directors at the races. You know, there's one head director and he's always in the first car. And you may have a second director actually driving that car so the head director can, you know, have his little calculator out, ha- have his iPad out, you know, have the radio in his hand without being interrupted uh, by having to slam on the brake or steer around uh, a dangerous descent or around a dangerous turn. But um, these guys look after, they're the main logistics contact for the mechanics, the soigneurs, the cooking truck. It's every question that somebody has goes through the DS. So the DS, you would just think, oh, they get up in the morning, they drive the car, once the race was over, they're done. It's not even close to that. Being a DS is one of the hardest jobs out there. Um, Obviously, when you have more second directors around and more coaches, you have more people to kind of think about it and help you with those logistical things. But yeah, they're, they're the ones that are running the team meetings. They're the ones that are communicating the tactics of the day in in the bus um they obviously put together a plan well before the tour and then you know maybe tweak it a little bit the day before depending on you know the chess pieces that they have uh, available to move around the board a little bit um you know they talk to the riders on the radio that's very important because there's a lot of communication out there these days um there has been some talk that, oh, the race radios, the directors call all the shots. It's like a guy sitting in the car with a PlayStation controller in his hand. But, you know, that's, that's not really the truth because, you know, you can say what you want. You can move your pieces where you want. But it all it does come down to what the riders can actually execute. You know, you can sit there and yell and scream, but it, it all comes down to the riders. I think, and that's, I think good... that's like a big misconception 
that a lot of fans have. Um, you know, they're like, ah, this is it, it's too controlled or it's too, you know, like let's get rid of the race radios. But like half the time you can't even hear the fucking radio. And um, true. And also too, like you know, like you're in the race. It's not like they go. Oh, do this now! Execute move now! Like you might be thirty riders back, or you might be on the right hand side of the road, and it's it's swinging left, and you get you know pushed out. Or so like there are a lot of factors there. That like of course, yeah, the, the director's there to kind of you know like potentially plot the course, but it's actually up to the riders and 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 to, to use their own brains and their own collective um, kind of consciousness to be able to execute those moves. And so. Yeah, whilst there is a guy in the car calling shots, it, it ultimately does come down to the riders, and and they they they're not zombies, you know, they're not they're not uh, they're not just avatars. They're they got to they got to they got to do do the work themselves. So I think that like that's an easiest it's an easy uh, criticism today to give when it's I don't think it's founded. Right, right, and you got to remember all these director sportifs they they know each other. They probably raced with each other. They were probably teammates with each other. So it's, it's kind of funny when, when you see, you know, like today, who's going to get up there and start pulling first? And everyone's like going around, you know, talking to each other in the cars in the caravan. It's like a little beehive of everyone having their secret conversations or calling each other on their cell phones. But um, it's funny sometimes when these guys have known each other for so long that they try to play these games or try to show a poker face, right? Like, you know, you're going to get up there and start pulling anyway. So, you know, Maybe stop all the drama and the poker's, <laughs> poker face and just get up there and do it. But, yeah, you know, that's part of it. You don't want to be the first one up there. And, and if you are up there, you want other teams helping you, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, some, some directors, I'm not saying all of them, do actually act like they're in the race still. And I think there has to be that disconnect. You can't be sitting there squeezing the, 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 the steering wheel as if you were going down a, a hill holding your handlebars. You know, there has to be that, that disconnect. And, and that's, you know, quite hard. But like I said, those guys are in the car all day long. They're switched on from the moment they wake up to the moment they get in the car. Maybe they have an hour at the, at the, um, the start line to kind of just go and chill, get a coffee over at the Village de Par, you know, read a newspaper, talk. But you know, they're, they're so mentally switched on, but they're not getting that endorphin release. They're not getting that physical activity. You know, when you go out for a ride, you come back and you feel better, right? These guys are going out and doing all that the riders are doing and probably even under more stressful conditions, but there's no release. So you have to find a way to, to release that sort of energy. And I have seen over the years that director sportifs are more and more riding before the stage or go out for a little ride after the stage just to kind of decompress a little bit. Um, the other thing that these director sportifs have to think about, they're always keeping an eye on the other teams. Like what, what other riders are looking good? The Tour de France is that transfer time where you start to talk to other riders for, for the upcoming seasons. So, you know, they have to keep an eye on those guys and maybe, you know, just nudge up next to them or when they're coming back through the caravan, they give them a little bit longer time behind the car and a thumbs up like, hey, I was nice to you. Remember when I come to talk to you about a contract next year that I was nice to you sort of thing. Right. But, um, yeah, if I was one of those directors right now, um, you know, thinking about riders, the one guy that really pops into my mind is that Zandrio 
I can't even pronounce his last name. Yeah. Um, Murez, Mureze from from Monty Goubert. This was the guy that beat uh, Greg Van Evermet up the up the Bosberg on the first stage and also finished eighth yesterday. And that goes back to what we were talking about a little bit yesterday in the podcast was, you know, riders on smaller teams doesn't mean that they're not going to make that transition to to the to the top tier to the world tour teams. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of director sportifs that are giving, um, Zan- Zandrio a little bit of love right now in the caravan. Do you reckon it's possible to be a good director and not have ridden a bike, not have raced a bike? Sorry. I, do you know of any? Yes, I do know of one. Paul Coakley. He was well before your time. He used to run uh, Helvetia, which was a big powerhouse back in the mid to late 80s, um, if my memory serves me correctly. He was one of the few that I don't think ever raced the bike. Um, So obviously, he was very, very smart. Obviously, he was a very good communicator. Obviously, he was somewhat of a psychologist. But I do feel that you have to have some experience of what these guys go through out there. Just like, you know, just like coaches. I mean, a lot of coaches, you know, they, they learn everything in a book and it's, it's kind of like white and black. But when you've been there and kind of done that, even at this lowest level, you understand a little bit more what it feels like to be doing a eight minute VO2 interval or a 25 minute threshold confirmation test or, you know, what it feels like in the third week of the tour when they ask you to go on the front and attack from the gun when you're just dead. But, and that's it, know, right? That's, that's it. It's about, it's about like they, uh, they command, like the, like they command the respect of the riders, don't they? You know, they need to be able to, to have that respect. Otherwise they're going to be, you know, useless at their job. And I get like being, being able to be empathetic and, and being sympathetic is, is a big part of that. Right. I agree, a hundred percent. It'd be interesting to go around the the teams at, at the at the race this year and actually see how many um, had no racing experience. I bet you it's less than less than three percent. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I can't. Like, I don't know. I don't, like. Uh, I've never heard of any any directors that haven't had racing experience. And on that, Bobby, I reckon that's a question that we can probably ask Tom. Uh, Tom Southam is currently at the Tour de France. He's uh, one of the sports directors for EF Education. Uh, he's a former pro writer and an author, actually. Quite a good one. Um, yeah, Tom, welcome. Thanks, man. Terrible bike rider, good author. <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Just coming back from stage four. Long day in the, in the, in the bunch, I think, you know. Yeah, it looked it. It looked it from the uh, from the couch here. It looked like it was a long day. Um, on the show, we basically like each each day we uh, have a theme, and today's theme is uh, is sports directors. Uh, so we just want to ask you a couple of questions about what it's like at the Tour de France for you guys. First question I wanted to know actually: uh, What's it like going from from being a rider to a director, like from racing and then and then sitting in the car? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's it's kind of strange. It? Like, it's it's it would be good sometimes if some riders actually came back in the car for a day and saw, you know, firstly, like what happens back there, um, and secondly, like the main the main real difference I've found has been the like the real stress emotions are, are different. Um, like when you're a rider, there's this like 
gnawing fear that you have a lot of the time before the and then elation after it. So you go like lower and then higher. Whereas as a director, because you can't really influence the race that much, um, like, I mean, you do your best, you want to give your best, but, you, but they're not quite the same. Like, obviously, you're nervous and you, you, know, you want the race to shape up as the way you want it. I mean, the, so the lows aren't as kind of low and the highs aren't as high, but you're also, you, you're tired, all the, like, you're tired a lot, but in a different way. So it's like real mental fatigue. So, like, you, you're tired when you get back from the race and I'm just been thinking all day. So, like, what is, like, you, you just said that, like, you, the, the, the mental fatigue is, like, the big killer. What, what, like, what, what, does, it, what does your day-to-day look like? Like, how many, you know, you're juggling an entire staff and, and riders. What, what does a day-to-day look like? So, we've divided up at the race. We've got three sports directors here. Um, Andreas Avant-Course, who's doing, like, 20 minutes in front of the race, giving the information back. Charlie's in the first car, and he's doing the race so he's like doing the tactics basically using me as like a you know for ideas or whatever but i'm take a back seat in that and then i do the getting from here to there and the staff and taking care that everything's working on the ground that way basically charlie can just think about about the bike race and i can help with bits but and how big of an operation is like the Tour de France for, for a team? Like you're racing all year, obviously. You've got races, you know, right up until a week before the Tour. But when do you start thinking about the Tour? Like when are you starting to begin that planning process? As soon as you start getting um, stuff from, you know, about what the race route's going to be, so whether or not we can do recons when we go to other races, you know, because a lot of these climbs you might, might go to in a different race, so, or where someone's, uh, there's a TT or something like that that's going to be close and we can work out what the route is and go and look at it then. Then, of course, selection's a big thing. Um, and that run the season, start with a long list of a lot of riders and just fall down. And then sort of we had like a TTT camp, for example, and then we really fine-tune things. As a director, we're preparing. I'm there for like three, four weeks. I start with the, like the, the maps of the stages, the GPX of the stages, um, the hotel details, roughly how long our day is going to, how long it's going to take us to, get from our hotel to the start in the morning and stop. We try and do as much of that as we can before we come to the race. And then obviously on a day-to-day, you're kind of adding and changing bits and pieces. And dude, that sounds, it sounds like a lot of um, a stress over things that you can't control, like predicting you know, how long it's going to take to get from the start to the finish of a stage. Is, it, sounds like, it sounds like a pressure cooker. It's, uh, it's hell, you know, especially when, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to overdo it. You know, you have to have your recon, like there's only a certain window for the recon. But for example, we were three hours after the recon window opened. So then, okay, we didn't know that until the night before. When do the riders eat? Because if they're doing the recon, when they're supposed to be eating or, you know, they don't want to eat just before they do that. And then where are they going to be between the finish of the recon and the start? Do we need an extra camper van, an extra bus, like, all of those things. I mean, you try and you try and get as good a picture as possible before you come here, and then still, like daily, we have to add and take away stuff. Here. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. Bobby was talking a lot about the the, the nightmare of a day that a team's time trial is. Um, what's your favorite bit of tech, or like, what's the most interesting bit of tech that you have to use in the car? Because I mean, I've got like in my mind, like when I if you if I was just to think, and I think a lot of people, it's like it's just the race radio, right? And you're just like communicating to your riders with that. But it is obviously a shitload of technology that you guys utilize to kind of analyze a race. There's loads. And we've got like a lot of information in the car now, you know, because we can have, um, we can have like live weather. 
you can have um, the GPX, obviously, with the, the like what when the climb's coming, when the road's going to change. You can make notes that are going to pop up in line. The best bit of tech is definitely the road book from the Tour de France. You know, it's a book, and when everything else fails, like everything else fails, you can look at that and the, how many kilometers you've done. You can work out what's going on. You know? Interesting. I love that. I, I've actually Old got school. like. Yeah, Bobby got us the, the race books this year and they're actually incredible. Yeah, oh yeah, they're, they're quite something. It would be nice if they send them more than a week before the start of the race, but yeah. what can you do? Mate, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, really appreciate that. Bobby, have you got any final questions? Uh, you asked the one that I wanted to know because, yeah, what what's in the car? Because I just envision these days it being like a cockpit of an airplane. You know, there's just so much going on. Um, but one last question. So... You said that Charlie is in the first car. Is he actually driving the first car or is he sitting in the passenger seat? So it alternates because Andreas uh, Clear also also drives that car. when it's a, a day like today when there's wind, Andreas is in front because we need the like, live information. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, two heads is always better than one, but I think more and more like in the future, it's going to go towards um, two directors in the car always because there's so much stuff that you have now. Um, and so much stuff to look at really like driving it's kind of you shouldn't have to be doing it to do the yeah. race properly are you solo in your car or you've got a mechanic as well I guess me and a mechanic and sometimes the doctor or... yeah okay I was going to say it'd be, a lo- it'd be a lonely old drive if you were just in there by yourself even with the poor old mechanic man I mean they just want to go to sleep because they're cleaning bikes at 10.30 and whatever. So. mate appreciate it we'll let you get back to it um, thanks so much no for worries. taking the time Take care, no man. Problem at all. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Talk guys. Thanks, Tom. Good luck for the rest of the race. No worries. Cheers, man. Thanks. Man, interesting. The race bible still, still the most uh, useful piece of uh, technology that that they have. But it, it's so true. They they release that less than a week before the start of the tour. It's like, wait a second. Do you guys not know what we're doing or where we're going? <laughs> you know what? What takes so long? Is it? You know. You're waiting for the the printing company to go into a certain month where they charge half price, or <laughs> what, what's the situation there? But, yep, I guess everybody has to deal with it at the same in the same way, and yeah, you just devour that thing. Um, I even see a lot of the riders paying really close attention to that, but you also see the riders that you know you, you see a book that's like brand new at state, you know, the last day of the Tour de France, like they never once flick through it. And those are the guys that are like just relying on their directors to give them that information and put those little stickers on their stems saying what, where the kilometers of the climbs are, the sprints and the percentages and the distances. Um, so, yeah, you have guys that are old school that just dive into that thing and other guys that probably don't even crack it open. Yeah, interesting. Should we uh, let's talk about we're running out of time. Let's talk about uh, tomorrow's stage. Give us a quick rundown. Yeah, really quick. Stage five, saint de de This is going to be a pretty tricky stage, I think. Um, few climbs. I, it, I would qu- qualify this as a, a lumpy stage, but I also think it's a good stage for the riders to kind of find their climbing legs a little bit. We're not doing anything crazy. We're doing a cat three at 44K. Then we have the sprint at 71, a cat two at 110, another cat two at 140, and then finally, a cat three at 156 with about 20K to go. None of these climbs are super steep, but they're all at that six, 
So I think it'll be enough to kind of rev the engine without blowing a piston through the hood. Yeah. But for for me, I look at this as being a very good opportunity for the breakaway to go to the finish. And I say that because obviously it's it's the day before a really big mountain day. So if somebody really wants to commit over those those two category twos and then that category three at the end with 20K to go, are you really going to, that, that is not a GC contender. It's not like, you know, if Thomas or Bernal or, you know, Thibaut uh, uh, takes off, right? Like then, then it's going to be game on. But I think it's going to be a breakaway and then guys kind of wanting to relax a little bit and not give the full effort, maybe keep their cards close to their chest as well because that next day is going to be brutal. And that's it, right? Like you got to think about that the next day. Um, that's an interesting take, a breakaway going to the line. It's pretty early in the, in the, in the race, but it makes sense. Yeah, so keeping that in mind and thinking about the KOM points, I was thinking about picking Wellens, but I'm going to go totally off script and go with the French national champion, Warren Barguil. So he's my Ooh. pick for tomorrow, surviving the, the breakaway or getting away later in the stage where um, the GC contenders maybe give him a little bit too much leash. Yeah, interesting. I had, I'd forgotten he was even in the race. Um, that's a good call. I'm, I was see. I was just. I'm going with Alaphilippe. Um, you know, get the getting while Pro- the going's good, or how you say that? <laughs> hey, heck yeah! I mean, how cool would that be for him to win a jersey, uh, win a stage in the yellow jersey? The, yeah, it would be sick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we'll see. It'll be an interesting stage, um, mate. Thank you for that. And uh, with that, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, you can tune in at uh, velonews.com get us on SoundCloud um, Velonews Voices on Twitter we'll be tweeting stuff and um, tune in tomorrow don't forget to put your socks on Bobby thanks a lot guys we'll see you tomorrow so Gus uh, recently somebody asked me about the road ID and they, they mentioned a little bit like you know, that, that makes me a little bit nervous that I have to put this information on uh, my, my, around my neck or around my arm because, like, that's almost saying that, that something's going to happen. And, you know, I totally have to disagree with that. I think it's better to be proactive than reactive in this situation. And it's just something that I have when I go out now that just makes me feel a little bit more comfortable, you know. And, um, yeah, for, for a very limited time, if you use coupon code TDF at RoadID.com, you'll score $5 off the piece of gear that no cyclist should be without. And I, I have to agree with that. I think when you go out, yeah. you, need to, you need to wear a helmet, regardless what bike you're on. If you're on a, a gravel bike, a mountain bike, a townie bike, whatever, use a helmet and have a Road ID. Again, that coupon is TDF at RoadID.com. And these are not expensive. You know, they range in prices from $20 to $35. So not only are they inexpensive and look good, last forever, but in a situation that is a bad scenario, it could save your life. So, you know, stop procrastinating. Go out and get one of these things today and get one for your for your kids, for your dogs, for your friends, whatever. RoadID.com. Thank you.
Nice one, Bobby. Cheers, guys. That was good. Eddie.